Representative Dan Kildee experienced the Flint water crisis as both a member of Congress and as a resident. He's fought to make sure the federal and state response offers the residents of Flint some semblance of justice. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation in Flint with Congressman Dan Kildee. Founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. He is born and raised here in Flint and from a very familiar political family. He's in his fourth <laughs> term uh, as the representative of the fifth district in Michigan, Dan Kildee. So I, I want to start at the beginning with you. Talk about how you came to understand that, that there was a problem with the water here in Flint. Well, I think, you know, the beginning, day one, I guess, is different for everybody. For, for me, it was uh, something that seemed odd when it occurred, you know, having grown up in Flint, being a Flint kid, when we saw this decision to uh, switch the water source to the Flint River. If you're from Flint, if you grew up here, if it weren't so sad, the result of it, it's kind of it sounds like the punchline to a joke. The idea would, of switching the that idea water of source. switching to the Flint River. So start with that. That felt like day one to me because I felt like wow, this is really going off the rails. This was during the period of the emergency financial manager, and it was like one of the first iterations of that law that struck me that there's something that they're able to do using the emergency management law that wouldn't happen if you had democracy in a city. Because even if the city wanted to do it, the public would put the kind of pressure on the city that would prevent them from doing it. So that to me was day one. And then obviously the other problems began. But in the summer of 2015, largely because there were citizens, not public officials, citizens who were leading the effort we began to hear more about the possibility of lead in the drinking water. Uh, and so at some point in that, in that summer, Senator Ananick and I asked for a meeting, the state officials and federal officials to kind of get the lowdown on all this, where they essentially denied that it was a significant problem. And about that same time, going to Dr. Mona, is when the blood data research was published late in that summer, and the whole thing blew up. Yeah. Yeah. She says in the book, for all Flint's problems, we at least had congressional representation. And if Representative Kildee could be brought in, made aware of the lead levels in Flint, we'd have more clout and more options. Uh, talk about the things that you did uh, to respond early on that, that, um, uh, that, were, that were designed to meet the crisis and, and, uh, and push it back. So two things that we did immediately. But the first tangible steps, other than just trying to raise public awareness, is that I put a call into uh, Governor Snyder, and I put a call into Gina McCarthy, who was then the head of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. You've probably seen, I don't know if you have, but if you haven't, you should look at it, the emails that were exchanged within the state government where they had a debate as to whether or not they would answer, the, the governor would return my call because wow. they felt like I, was, I had some other agenda other than, you know, trying to protect the people of my hometown, which seems like a logical thing for an elected representative to do. Uh, ultimately, they did respond. Um, so 
and ultimately the EPA did too, but I think you made a point that I just want to underscore. The reason I reached out to those two entities is that they both had responsibility for what took place. I think the majority of the responsibility clearly, the vast majority clearly lies with the decisions that were made by the state. But just because of that doesn't mean that everyone else is forgiven. The EPA can't be forgiven for sitting on their hands for as long as they did, with the, exce with the exception of Miguel del Toro, the EPA essentially sat on its hands. And I know I may ruffle feathers when I say this, but those elected officials whose authority had been suspended here in Flint have some responsibility too, because even if their authority was gone, their voices were not. That's, that's where I started. Well, and I remember the photos from that time and that day, the very day of the switch, you had the local officials standing next to the emergency manager. They all had glasses of water in their hands, drinking from them, kind of celebrating this. And there's an historical perspective to, to this story that I think gets lost sometimes. This idea of getting away from Detroit's water right. system is four decades old here in, in Flint. And so I, I always feel like that helped make uh, the decisions that the emergency manager was making a little more palatable maybe to some some folks. The idea that, okay, we are going to get off Detroit water and, and, and go it alone, ultimately with the, the Karagnandi project. But, but in the meantime, they thought, well, we'll just, we'll do it locally. Yeah, and of course that decision was really made as a balance sheet decision. Right. It was to have a temporary significant cost savings between the end of the current Detroit agreement and the commencement of water service starting through uh, the new pipeline from Port Huron. And so this was really a balance sheet uh, issue, which kind of gets to, I think, what is the underlying problem here? The, the Flint story is not just a Flint water story. This is a story of a community that has been left behind in a lot of different ways. And water was just one you know, really significant piece of that story. And if it were just water that was the problem, then we'd be in a much different position that we're in. And I don't mean to dwell on this point, but so often uh, during this crisis, when we were at the very beginning of it, in fact, trying to figure out, well, what we need to do to make things right in Flint, there was talk about, well, we got to get Flint back to where we were before that switch was made. And my answer was, no. We don't want to go back to where we were before the switch was made, because that's a really bad place. The fact is, the reason that Flint, the Flint water crisis was such a crisis is that it was a community that was just right on the edge and was one mistake away from going into the kind of free fall that this water crisis precipitated. But I don't want to go back to the point where we're just one mistake away from another free fall. We have, we have really big fundamental problems that yeah. need to be addressed. So, so now, five years later, give us your assessment of, of where we are, not just with the water question, but these other bigger questions that, uh, that you're raising. Yeah, so on the water question, I think one, a couple of points. One that I think is really important to make. People from outside of Flint need to stop telling folks that things are better, they're okay, and that the water's fine. Because the biggest loss in all of this is the fact that for reasons that are legitimate, people can't trust what the government is telling them. The idea that we can say, okay, erase the history, now we're telling you the truth, now you can actually trust what we're saying, 
is just a complete fallacy, and it's an insult to the people of Flint and what they've gone through. So let's start with the idea that Flint's recovery is far, far from over, and it's going to take a lot more than infrastructure changes. It's going to take something that will take, I'm sure, a very long time, and that's the rebuilding of some modicum of trust between the people and the institutions of government that they rely on. So that's a backdrop that I think has to sort of pervade the entire conversation. People need to stop telling Flint to move on because we're still in it. That's number one. Secondly, the recovery for Flint out of this crisis can't be just about getting to the place where we have clean drinking water because the lack of clean drinking water was not the only consequence of the crisis. There was a psychological impact that is still being felt, anxiety and anger that's experienced by people here all the time that continues to be a problem. There was a really significant economic hit that this community took. Even though we already have struggled economically as the result of really four decades of decline uh, due to changes in, in the way the global economy affects places like Flint, this really hurt us further. Any potential new opportunity went away. I know specifically of development uh, opportunities that were on the, sort of in the pipeline, maybe not the right term to use, um, that were coming <laughs> that you know, went someplace else. It's hard to figure out what the real loss was, but we know there was a real economic hit. And then the physical and emotional and direct impact of high levels of lead exposure, the fact that people died as a result of the Legionnaires issue, the fact that we don't really have a full sense of what that looked like mm -hmm. and what the data will really show on, on greater review. We're a long way from being through this. And the result, or the fix, I should say, is not just about getting us back to having trustable, clean drinking water. It's about repairing all the other damage that the crisis created. Yeah. Uh, I'm Ann DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. And I'm really curious what your assessment now in hindsight is of how Governor Snyder, who, whose administration was responsible for uh, the emergency manager who made this decision. Um, uh, by the time he left office, obviously he'd, he'd focused in on, on, the, on the crisis, acknowledged uh, the things that had happened. But did you feel like by the time he left office, he'd done most or all of the things that could be done to, to put Flint back on the, the right track? No, not at all. You know, I'll give you like one very good example. Flint was in financial receivership because the state of Michigan made a decision to eliminate direct support for the city of Flint. The fact that the state had to take the city over was the direct result of decisions that the state itself had made to unbalance the city's budget by balancing their own with money that was intended for city governments. The fact that you know we in Congress um, took a while, uh, were able to get significant resources, but the resources come through the state, I think 
once in a while I get a little frustrated hearing about the state money when it's the state money that the federal government sent to the state for the purposes of repairing a lot of this infrastructure. Uh, that was an act of Congress. That was the last bill signed by President Barack Obama before he left office. So, no, they haven't done nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Because in here, And here's, the, I think, the most important point of this. When you do something to a community like this, and it's clear, like I said before, the state committed the acts. The other failures had, to re, had uh, I think, are, are more better characterized by the lack of action to deal with the result of that decision that was made. EPA should have done a lot more. Others should have stepped out much, much more aggressively. But the state committed the acts that caused this problem. When you do that, you have a responsibility to, to sort of flood the zone, to go beyond what is minimally required to undo the direct harm that you caused, but to do more than just you know, fix the pipes. Uh, they have an obligation, I think, to the city of Flint that's going to last for a long time because the result of this is going to last for a long time. And I don't think they've done nearly enough. Mm. Uh, so now we have a new governor, a, a Democrat, Gretchen Whitmer. Talk about the things that, that you have noticed in terms of how that administration might be dealing with this differently. Well, I think the conversation between the city and the state is a fundamentally different conversation because the state is no longer in a position of treating this like a public relations problem, which is largely what, the way I think Governor Snyder addressed it, not so much as a, a problem. Um, I mean, I think it remains to be seen what else will come. And I know that our state uh, legislators are pushing hard. I've had a lot of discussions with the governor on this. Um, getting the governor and the Republican legislature together on anything, whether it's fixing the roads or doing something more or Flint is a tall order, uh, but I have a lot more confidence that she will understand that she has to do something. I mean, the thing that, that, that frustrates me, at least, about Lansing is that no matter who's governor and, or no, no matter which party is in control, this, this conversation about municipal finance and how broken it is in the state doesn't get beyond kind of a preliminary acknowledgement that yeah. uh, that things are are broken. I mean, the, the the cuts to revenue sharing that you're talking about were enacted by Governor Granholm, who was a Democrat. Along, you know, Governor Engler before her started them, but she continued them as a way of of balancing the budget. She wouldn't lean in on the idea of, hey, there's got to be a different way to do this to fund cities. I had that argument with Rick Snyder I don't know how many times that the system was broken and that what we needed to do was re-examine that. He, he was no, no more accommodating of that than, uh, than the Democrats were. Yeah, and the problem with this issue is that it gets wonky, like really a policy wonkish really fast. And I've spent a lot of my career working on this, but let's just put it in real clear terms. We don't fund cities in a manner that's necessary to maintain the basic elements of a civil society. And so the idea that there's no consequence to that is ridiculous. We don't have the basic funding in place. Think about it. We don't have the basic funding in place to keep a community from facing some kind of crisis. When you don't have parks that are maintained and mowed, when you have streets and water systems that are crumbling, when... There's not adequate police and fire. Forget about all the other things like recreation, you know, economic development, all the things that are really important to keep a community moving forward. We have a very dangerous municipal finance system 
that rewards communities that are in the period of expansion and growth. But once a community begins to hit some sort of stasis, they can't survive. The issue in Michigan, and it's true in a lot of other places, is that if we don't figure out that we're not providing the basic elements of civil society in communities, in one, in one place it's going to be water. In some other community, it's this sort of very sad, almost invisible death of a thousand cuts where kids just don't have opportunity. And you never hear about it, it never makes a headline, it's never on Rachel Maddow, but it's just this sort of really sad, slow loss of optimism or hope that young people growing up in these really, really difficult places experience. And the downstream cost is told in a thousand stories of tragedy. And it just never bubbles up to the attention of the public the way a water crisis does. Yeah. I want you to talk a little about your personal journey through all of this. As I said, you're a Flint native and you represent this community in, in, in Washington. What has this been like for you? It's been, I just as a Flint kid, first of all, but also as a public official, you know, we're all subject to sort of the same assumptions. I always operated on the assumption that you turn on the tap and the water's okay. You know, I mean, why would you think otherwise? That's just sort of our conditioning. And so it's caused me as a public official to not take anything like that for granted anymore. And so just to answer your question more directly, it's caused me to go down a road on this issue of something as fundamental as drinking water and find out, uh, to mix my metaphors, that lead in water is just the tip of the iceberg. We've got all sorts of problems in drinking water in this country that people really need to wake up to. What this has really done for me is shaken my confidence that what we have taken for granted, the fundamental elements of community, something as fundamental as drinking water, in the 21st century, in the richest country in the world, can't be taken for granted. And we have to return to those really fundamental questions about what we need to do to make sure that those elements of civil society are in place. So that's what I've been spending a lot of my time in Washington working on. On the next episode of Created Equal, my conversation with the former EPA water quality expert who convinced Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha to look into what was happening with Flint's water. Mona invited me over for dinner one night and started talking about her commute to Flint. All the pieces fell together in my mind and I realized that she had the ability to do this. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.